Hello, I'm Kerry Lonigan. Welcome to The Weekly Grill. Today, presenting a voice with a familiar name to Beef Central readers. The founder, editor, publisher of Cattle Buyers Weekly from the west coast of the United States of America. Welcome to Steve Kay. Hello, Steve. Greetings from down under. Hi, Kerry. Good morning. We're delighted and thrilled to have you on board today. Your familiar voice because um, you were born, and and you'd be familiar with that term I said, greetings from down under, because you were born in some of the beautiful lamb and beef country on the South Island of New Zealand. I was. Uh, if some, some of your listeners know it, I was born uh, on Banks Peninsula near Christchurch. Well, wow, that's a famous port, isn't it? Well, port of Littleton, but I grew up actually in the deepest natural harbour in the southern hemisphere, Kerry, called yeah. Akaroa Harbour. And good country around there. Oh, yeah, rich volcanic soil, and we ran uh, from uh, sea level to 2,000 feet, a dairy herd, a beef herd, sheep herd, hog, you name it, we had it. How was the voyage from New Zealand to the USA? How did you get there? I took off like a lot of other young New Zealanders in my mid to late 20s, went through the United States, ended up living and working in London for eight or nine years. During that time, early during that time, I married uh, an American lady that I'd met in Houston, Texas, of all places. And we had two children. And then we came back to California in 1986 in Petaluma, which is about 40 miles north of San Francisco. And uh, I started Cattlebuyers Weekly thereafter in December 1987. So now you're in America servicing the beef industry with well, a million producers, uh, sometimes more than 100 million cattle. That's a big step. Well, certainly the, the U.S. industry carry is by far the largest in the world, and it's obviously therefore by far the largest producer of, of grain-fed beef. And that's, you know, that's its hallmark. Let's get into it. How is the American beef industry travelling at present? What is the level of confidence among producers? Highly confident, and I'll get to that in a bit. I, I thought what I would do is uh, mention a few key points and then look at the supply side, and that's why producers are so confident. And then I'll look at the demand side, because that's uh, terribly important, because all wealth to the industries in Australia, New Zealand, United States, everywhere around the world come from consumers. You know, the U.S. meat and poultry industry face unprecedented challenges due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and like in Australia, carrier labor shortages, supply chain, transportation disruptions have sharply reduced production at times. And what's interesting to me is that this led many in the beef industry, as well as politicians, of course, to claim the industry needed more beef processing capacity. And this is despite the fact that it has ample capacity. I put it at 135,000 head per day. That shows how huge the industry is. Now, beef processing firms made record large profits. Surprisingly, uh, that was because of the reduced supply of beef couldn't keep up with the strong demand at home and abroad. And, of course, such results are unlikely to be repeated in the foreseeable future. And the contrary, beef processing margins in this year and next year will be small and might even be negative. All this is because the, the supply of grain-fed cattle will decline sharply this year and next year, Kerry. The January one week, we have a USDA put out a, a, a cattle inventory report every year at the end of January. And the January 1, 2023 U.S. cattle herd total is down 2.8 million or 3% from January 1 last year. Huge year-on-year decline. That'd be the lowest cattle inventory uh, since 2015. In fact, the herd 
has shrunk in each of the last four years. Last year's drought decline was due to severe widespread drought. I mean, there's hardly a part of the country that wasn't was not touched by drought. But we also had very high input costs at the ranch level, all kinds of, every kind of cost from fuel to, to hay, whatever, uh, rose to elevated levels. All these factors uh, forced producers to liquidate some of their beef cows. Now, in contrast, the first quarter of this year, and here in California, it started in December, because we'd been in drought forever. Uh, the first quarter of this year has, has seen very timely rains in many regions. So third liquidation may end this year. But hay costs are still very high, and, and uh, you know, beef cow liquidation will still continue for some of this year. Any meaningful herd rebuilding, though, Kerry, may not begin till late next year or even early 2025, according to some analysts. And ironically, when it does, you know, fewer heifers will enter feedlots, further tightening cattle supplies, both uh, cattle feeders and, and grain-fed beef processors. And, uh, you know, cattle feeding margins <laughs> won't won't see the kind of losses that, that I read on Beef Central yesterday of what anything from three fifty dollars to thousand dollars or more? Yeah, I, they are, I extra- to they are extraordinary. Aren't they? Yes, they are. They 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 had to put cattle feeders out of business. Yeah. Just to go back to the numbers, I don't want to have too many numbers, but our beef cow numbers on January one at, at just under twenty nine million were down three point six percent. So that shows how many more cow beef cows were slaughtered last year. And the replacement heifers, which are a very critical factor, they were down 5.8%. USDA also estimated the 2022 calf crop was down 2%. So we've got, you know, we've got fewer cattle in every important category on the beef side of the of the business. It sounds like you've got some varied weather there, where the weather on the west coast is getting better, and the weather in that big cattle country in the centre is not improved so much. Is that how how it is? The drought is mostly broken through the western United States. Uh-huh. Uh, having said that, California has a historically deep snow up in this mountains, uh, yes. top to bottom of the state. That is quite you weird. It's quite weird. We see it a lot in Australia. It is very weird, snow in California. A lot will depend, Kerry, on, on the amount of speed of the melt. Uh, you know, if it, if it melts very slowly, that's good because it won't all run out to sea. But... You know, California for 50 years, people have been saying we've got a critical shortage of water storage facilities like dams and other things. And, you know, it's almost criminal that we've suffered all these droughts and, and water shortages and yet so much rainfall every year and snow melt actually ends up in the ocean. But there have been some timely rains in Texas, Oklahoma that are big cow-calf states, beef cow-calf states. Nebraska's still somewhat dry. That's probably the of the major, what we call the major five or six cow-calf states. It's probably still the driest. You certainly had some weird weather right across the states. I mean, fires, floods, oh, droughts, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's, snowstorms. It's been quite bizarre. We've had extremes, but yeah. you know, Australian uh, yeah, well, farmers <laughs> and graziers not so different. Extremes. <laughs> we, we let have... me let me turn to uh, to meat and poultry production sure. this year to give your sure a view of the scale of the industry. Total red meat and poultry production this year will actually decline for the first time in a decade. 
Pork production is going to increase 2%. Broiler meat or chickens will be up 1%. But beef production is going to take a, a, a real dive. It's going to decline, as according to USDA, 5.7%. And its forecast is that the production will total 26.665 billion pounds. But that's versus a record 28.290 billion pounds uh, last year. So that's a big decline. And, of course, the, the question is, it's going to raise wholesale and, and retail beef prices as we go forward. And it's also going to have an impact on your ability to export beef as well, I would suggest. Domestic demand, of course. I mean, we export 12%, 14% of all our production, not not like anywhere, like Australia is what, 60%. Yeah. But, you know, it makes it all the more important that U.S. consumer demand for beef, pork, and chicken were strong before the onset of, of the, the pandemic. But got even stronger, of course, like Australian consumers, uh, Americans stayed at home and cooked a lot more, and they're still doing that. Beef was by far the biggest winner of all the meats, Kerry, as consumers sought a meat treat in exchange for not being able to feed out at most dine-in restaurants for many months. You know, they thoroughly got used to the idea of, I could buy a beautiful New York strip or something uh, for, you know, 10 to $15 a pound instead of paying twice that much of a sit-down restaurant. Beef retail prices, uh, which the USDA uh, releases every month, they eventually reached record high levels in October 2021, which is sort of the height of the pandemic. And we have two; ser- they have two series of prices. The all-fresh, which is everything, price average seven fifty-five a pound. That's US dollars, of course. And the choice-grade price average seven ninety a pound. Maybe it began to decline after that, of course. In January this year, they were seven twenty and seven fifty-seven, respectively. These were still down just slightly from a year ago. And I mention all this because obviously prices will increase this year, but not reach anywhere near the record levels of October 2021. Steve, uh, and I think that consumers are unlikely to be phased by higher prices as they already faced them in 2021 and, and were prepared to pay more. Uh, can I just say, I read we where Americans are now buying more fresh meat than before COVID. Oh, yeah, exactly. That will change because there won't be so much available. <laughs> well, there might be more more pork and chicken, but I, as I said earlier, the, the total red meat and poultry supply will be down slightly. Well, yeah. I think one point of, of special interest is that retail demand for high quality beef remains remarkably strong, and it was it was again like overall demand. It was it was quite strong before the pandemic. But because of the factors I outlined, you know, people wanting a meat treat, it's remained strong. And the two largest sellers of USDA prime beef, which is our top grade, that the giants Costco and Walmart both report very robust sales. You know, it's reflected in the price spread between the prime and the choice beef wholesale cutouts reported by USDA each week. For the week ending September 23 last year, Kerry, the, the spread was an all-time record high or, or wide of $91.46. It was back at $38 last week, but yeah. Americans love their, their beef and are prepared to pay for it. Exactly. Now, just warehouses, are they full of beef at present? There's more beef in storage than normal, but that's seasonal. 
And obviously, as if beef production declined throughout the year, as expected, those they won't empty out, but those uh, cold storage supplies will decline accordingly. Yeah. The, the big export markets, are they being sustained or are they dropping off a fraction? I mean, you've got China. We might be in for a little bit of a shock this year, and the global markets generally might be in for a bit of a shock because, you know, beef exports last year were one of the top stories in the U.S. beef industry, and they, you know, they topped. $1 billion US dollars in value most months of the year and totaled a, a, a record 1.47 million metric tons, which was up 2% from the previous high in 2021. Yeah. However, X value climbed to a record $11.7 billion, which is up 10%. So obviously consumers, notably in Asia, but in other countries, were prepared to pay even more for beef. Uh, last year for U.S. beef than the year before. Yeah, your exports to China are just astonishing, absolutely astonishing. Well, yeah, I mean, no, nobody really... I, I think one or two forecasts were made when China was on the cusp of, of reopening. I don't think anybody could have imagined that we'd sell a uh, billion dollars of beef or more to, to China. Uh, it's quite incredible. Yeah, try 17 Exports overall, though, <laughs> as the year came to an end, and this spilled over into into January versus a year ago because the, the volume fell 15% and the value was down 32%. Yeah. So it, didn't, it wasn't a good start to the year. And the U.S. Meat Export Federation that, that promotes the market, so U.S. beef around the world, said beef inventories had swelled in some key markets near the end of last year, especially uh, you know South Korea and, and probably China as well. And that you know, contributed to a challenging environment for, for U.S. exports. Yes. And the U.S. dollar is also pretty strong against most other currencies, and so that's been a challenge for that and will yeah. continue to be a challenge for U.S. beef exports. Just what you're saying there, is, is supply the key to the future, immediate future of the American beef industry? Well, yes and no. I mean, USDA currently forecasts that that U.S. beef exports will be down 12.6% in 2023 versus 2022. Wow. But many people question this decline because, as I mentioned, total production will only be down 5.7%. Maybe USDA is thinking that, you know, the higher prices that will be asked for U.S. beef will deter buyers. You know, the big question that I have is, you know, whether a decline in U.S. production and availability on the global market will force those regular buyers of U.S. beef to accept higher prices than they did last year on the premise that no other countries will be able to make up the shortfall in grain-fed beef supplies on the global market. Exactly. Now, an American commentator I was reading recently suggested it's not a matter of whether beef production will fall in America. It's a matter of how far and how fast it will fall. Would you agree with yeah. that sentiment? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that most private analysts agree broadly with USDA's assessment that it will decline by about 6% this year. It probably won't decline by that much in 2024, but it certainly won't increase until we have herd rebuilding throughout 2025, and, and so beef production may not increase till, start increasing until 2026. Yeah. A couple of other topics I'd like you to touch on, if possible, Steve. Um, what attitude does the United States beef industry have to the 
greenhouse gas emissions picture, which is hovering very loud and noisy over the beef producers of Australia. What do, what do U.S. beef producers think of it? 99.9% of the industry and all its individual participants are taking it very seriously and are extremely proactive in reducing um, emissions, particularly you know, whether it's methane and, and everything else. Titan Foods, the largest processor of grain-fed beef, uh, I don't have the details in front of me, <laughs> outlined a program just a few, last week to have a special line of beef that is going to be certified as sustainable environmentally uh, sustainable or carbon neutral. Or- the, the entire industry, as I say, sustainable beef roundtable, the you know global yes. roundtable mm-hmm. is is very highly supported, as you know. I mean, in Australia as well, and there are individual moves afoot. Individual meaning company moves yeah. and and individual participants in the in the cattle industry to to be extremely proactive for once without expecting some kind of monetary reward. Uh, so the far. attitude is <laughs> so far. You know that that seems to be the attitude. Yeah, our goal, as you would probably know, the MLA goal is for carbon neutrality by two thousand and thirty. What? do American producers have to say on this, if, if anything at all? I think the National Cattlemen's Beef Association that represents, you know, it's the largest organisation like MLA, I think they have a similar goal. Uh, so we're right in tune with what's happening yep. and what is being projected to happen in Australia. So moving on, I'm told one of the most prevalent chatter at beef industry functions is the uh, possibility of disease and especially foot and mouth coming into Australia. Is that still making a lot of noise? Coming into the United States, you mean? Oh, absolutely. You know, we have not had foot and mouth disease in this country since 1929, and the industry wants everything to be done to, to avoid it ever entering the country. You know, we went through very, very severe market disruptions Globally, when we had our first and subsequent BSE cases, and people look at that and shudder and go, we'd never, never want to even see FMD appear on our shores. So that's... Uh, where's, the, where's the major worry, Steve? Is it, is it cattle coming in from Mexico or something like that, is it? Or? No, it would, come, it would come in, you know, in, in meat from some other country, but oh. not... I'm not saying that there's any one country that would be more likely to export it, foot and mouth disease in, in meat. But, you know, the two, two things, Kerry, uh, as you probably know, you know, every plant overseas that's licensed to export meat to the United States is has to be inspected, not daily, but has to be inspected by yep. uh, USDA's Food Safety and Inspection Service, and then meat. You know, all meat on a random basis, all meat is inspected at port of entry into the United States. So there are rigorous biosecurity safeguards in place to, yeah. to prevent foot and mouth entering the country yeah. in, in whatever form or vehicle. It's all too frightening to contemplate foot and mouth, isn't it? Now, labelling, Steve, um, labelling, a lot of talk about Washington introducing product of USA legislation for US beef and other products. What's behind this and how far might it go? Politics is behind it, supported by uh, a few disenchanted cattle producers and others. Labelling has been a contentious issue for, for 15 years or more. We had a long campaign, five or seven years of, of the government 
proposing to introduce what we called mandatory country of origin labeling or COOL, and it was eventually introduced in 2016. That meant the absurdity that if a, a processor and or retailer co-mingled product from several countries, they had to put every one of those countries on the label at the retail level, whether or not it contained meat. So you might have a fresh ground beef that had a label saying product of USA, Canada, Mexico, Australia, etc. You know, <laughs> and I mean, really, really, all it did carry it. It just, it just showed total confusion in the minds of consumers. And consumer surveys after surveys said that such product labeling, the country of origin labeling, did nothing to help beef sales. And in fact, all it did was add billions of cost every year because cattle and or uh, beef had to be segregated at the plant level uh, to satisfy the requirement. If you wanted to ha- make the product as product of the USA, you'd have to separate everything that came in from out of the country, be it a, a live animal or the meat. And the exact same would occur with this USDA says that a voluntary product of the USA label, you know, you'd have to segregate meat processors and retailers would have to segregate their products yet again and for absolutely no advantage. So I don't I don't think the measure will go anywhere. You know, there's such opposition to, to country of origin labeling last time round. I dare say Canada and Mexico will uh, threaten legal action yet again to the, the World Trade Organization. So I don't see it flying. Well, watch with interest now, Steve. The key question for Australian beef producers at present, if and when US production falls, what benefit might come to Australian beef exporters? Well, there are two benefits, and, and one, one is probably immediate. Unless, unless our beef-cow slaughter numbers maintain the levels of last year, which I very much doubt they will because beef cow slaughter last year was significantly up. It means that our supply of, of domestic lean manufacturing beef will shrink and that will lend itself to more frozen 90s coming from Australia and it will raise the value of that product in the marketplace. Secondly, Australia may see a growing market for higher quality cuts of beef as well. It would probably all have to be grain fed, but you know we do have we do have a, a strata of the beef supply or usage in this country that that takes lower grades of beef that are lower than than prime and choice. Of course, you know we we only produce about eleven to twelve percent select beef, the third largest category, and then after that uh, our beef is all ungraded. So, you know, Australia might find a, a, a growing niche in certain markets, whether it's probably more likely to be, well, could be both at retail and food service. Uh, you know, I, I've seen Australian beef, you know, labeled as such and featured in, in uh, grocery store meat cases over the years. So it's nothing but positive. I think the, the third positive is that, and it'll take a while for Australia to uh, Raises production, you know those numbers and projections far better than I. But Australia might capture some market share back from from the US in key markets like uh, Japan and South Korea and China and China. Mm. Well, I don't I don't know what the tonnage going from Australia to China is, but 
U.S. did so much last year, it'd probably take a long time to catch up with yeah. the U.S. <laughs> we we did do, we were sending a lot prior to a few years ago, but we're we're holding hands at present with China, and maybe there'll be a return to uh, some of the days gone by sooner rather than later. We'll see. If your production falls, that's inevitable, I think, because I'll have to get it from somewhere. Right, exactly. And, and you know, Brazil will make up a little bit of a shortfall but, yeah. uh, in some markets. But, you know, as, as I said earlier, you know, nothing nothing will replace high-quality U.S. grain-fed beef. Steve Kay, founder, editor, publisher of Cattle Buyers Weekly in the USA and a good friend to Beef Central. Thank you so much for taking time to be on the grill with Beef Central. Thanks, Steve. Kerry, you're very welcome. Thank you, everybody. And thank you for joining me today. Until next time, I'm Kerry Lonigan, and this is the Weekly Grill. 